in general, I wouldn't be in a rush to do anything right now in terms of, you know, calling a bottom or anything like that. I think you just got to be disciplined, keep, you know, in the real estate sense that we're in, keep looking at deals, keep looking to see what makes sense, be disciplined, have a pretty high hurdle for what you think you want to do and what makes sense for you to pull the trigger. Just keep looking for good deals, do them when they show up, but don't be, don't be crazy. Don't stretch. Don't over leverage. I'm Drew Brenneman, and this is the Rise and Invest podcast. I bought my first two properties as a 19-year-old with my own money that I earned from an online business I started in high school. I've now grown my portfolio from that first duplex to hundreds of millions of dollars of investment property. My goal with this show is to give you the resource I wanted when I first started out. Subscribe to our podcast where I break down real-life stories, tactics, strategies, and current market information you need to be a successful investor. Welcome to the podcast, everybody. Uh, before we get started with today's episode, just want to remind everybody to like, subscribe, leave a five-star rating just on whatever platform you're listening or watching on. It uh, really helps others hear about the podcast. Uh, and super easy, quick to do, especially Apple, Spotify. You just uh, click the number of stars you want and you're you're done. So um, just want to get that, uh, you know, keep spreading the word. I think on Apple, we're up to like 90 reviews. So want to try to push that to 100 soon if we can. So if you can take a second, I'd appreciate it. Uh, And then today's episode, we have a return guest, uh, Phil McAllister. Welcome, Phil. Hey, Drew. Thank you. Great. Yeah. And so really, Phil's like one of the most knowledgeable people I know when it comes to interest rates, inflation, economics. So I wanted to get him back on the podcast and see what he's thinking. You know, I think we shot an episode, um, you know, three or so months ago. And like this, a lot's happened the last three months with interest rates and inflation. Uh, and so wanted to, you know, just kind of see what, what he's thinking now. So on this episode, you're going to learn what's going on today uh, and what to expect with inflation. And you're also going to learn what is going on today and what to expect with, with interest rates, plus a bunch of other stuff that we'll hit. Um, and with that, I think let's get, let's get rolling. But yeah, Phil, maybe just give a quick introduction on yourself. Sure. Yeah. So, yeah, I'm a real estate guy by trade. Um, I also enjoy, you know, following and doing macroeconomic research. So, um, you know, spend most of the time in the sort of larger institutional real estate world. Uh, but just here in a personal capacity to kind of talk, talk shop and, and talk about some of the broader macro things that are going on. So, uh, yeah, happy to get going wherever you want to kind of dive in first. Yeah. I mean, I think really, how did you get going? Uh, so, right, you work full time at a at a big real estate shop, but how did you get going with knowing, uh, I mean, you know so much about economics and just how things work, uh, you know, where tip, a lot of times even just like I'll explain to somebody and I know just a fraction of what you do on this stuff, but just where like they think when the Fed raises rates, like, OK, that means my 30 year mortgage is, is going to increase by 75 bips now uh, if they just raise 75 and like you're one of the. Uh, you've like explained how that works the best I've seen. Um, where did you kind of get um, like it's just a personal interest or this what you majored into? Yeah, I mean, I majored in economics in college and then I realized that like so much of what you learn in college isn't even like representative of what's going on in the real world. And once you kind of catch that bug and see like what else is out there, what other information is out there, you just kind of start falling down the rabbit hole. So, you know, I've I've read, you know, the dry economic white papers i've you know read the more kind of the books that people write to try to make it a little bit more interesting i follow you know people paid research and you know the free stuff that's out there and just kind of start formulating stuff and then tracking the data myself and trying to figure out what actually makes sense 
based on the theories people will tell you and what seems to be more theoretical and doesn't actually show up in the real world and just kind of building on it from there. So, I mean, it's definitely a little bit of a nebulous concept and there's always so many things short term that can kind of make things bounce around and fluctuate and, and, and give people, you know, reasons to not understand what the heck is going on. But, um, you know, to me, ultimately it comes down to thinking about it based on what do we know fundamentally is true about the economy and what do we know about the fundamental relationships between things like inflation and interest rates and some of the other things that are going on in the economy. And then if they're, if those things are changing or moving, do those movements correlate or, or kind of support sort of that long-term economic gravity, if you will, or are they deviations that you would expect to kind of return back to normal? So I think my take on interest rates and inflation is really based off of that sort of broader concept. You know, when you think about, you know, where is economic gravity pulling things right now versus, you know, the time period that a lot of people talk about in the 70s and early 80s, when was the last time we actually had really concerning inflation and those two things are just completely different right now in almost every way that you can imagine and i think that's the key factor to understand if you're trying to think about what's happening with real estate and kind of where or in, in interest rates and, and inflation all that stuff and, and where it's going to go in the future so to kind of i guess drill into that a little bit further you know there's some charts that i throw out on twitter sometimes and maybe i can pull a couple up and kind of walk people through them here yeah, let's do it. Just to kind of show people what I mean. So the one that I'm pulling up now and, and to kind of explain what you're seeing here, this is one of my favorite charts. And what it's basically showing is the civilian labor force growth on a 10-year compounded you know, growth rate average. And that's on a, it's set up to be a four-year lead versus the 10-year CPI uh, Kager, right? So and what you see is that on that four-year lead, civilian labor force growth is extremely highly correlated with CPI growth. And it, what that means in practice is that when there's additional people coming into the labor force every single year at a higher rate than the year before, then you're constantly putting pressure on supply chains to keep up. You're putting pressure on prices as people borrow and spend to kind of grow into their new surroundings and into their new income, right? So in the, in the 70s, and early 80s, that's when you had the baby boomers who at the time were just by far the biggest population group in the country and on a relative basis were just such a huge bubble in sort of the demographics. All those people entering the workforce at the same time, buying new stuff, starting families, furniture, housing, appliances, you name it. Very inelastic demand for that kind of stuff. All at the same time that you had sort of the money supply increasing and coming off of Bretton Woods and everything else that was going on back then. So you had sort of, you know, a situation where the fundamentals in the economy were such that population growth, employment growth were driving inflation higher and driving interest rates higher because of that, because there was less capital around and more, you know, need for it. So and at the same time, people trying to, you know, spend money currently, meaning there's less savings and investing going on. All of that pushes the price of money up higher. Uh, and as inflation goes up, obviously, interest rates come along with it. So, as you kind of think about where we are today, just an entirely different situation, right? So, you know, population growth is really low. Labor force growth is really low. You can see here on the chart, you know, barely above 0% really is what the labor force is growing at right now. And you just can't have economic growth that really exceeds your labor force growth 
plus the productivity growth of your labor. Because at the end of the day, as complicated as you want to make economics, GDP growth is simply the number of people working and how productive those people are. And you add that all up, and that's what your whole country can produce, right? So if those two things, productivity and your labor force, aren't growing very fast, your economy just can't grow very fast. And slow-growth economies with very high debt loads like we have right now and poor productivity growth are just those are just highly associated with slow inflation, low interest rate kind of environments. So that's kind of the key takeaway that I would tell people. And as you kind of go through some of these other charts, we can kind of see where that all kind of plays in and how that, how interest rates might also play into that. So if you look at the next chart here, here I'm just kind of showing the federal funds rate and the 30 year mortgage rate. So it's kind of what you hinted at earlier uh, and, and that relationship there. And when you think about what can happen with the federal funds rate, you should kind of think about it like like there's a rope laying on the floor, right? And the Federal Reserve can pick up the one end of the rope and they can lift it up as high as they can. But the further out on the rope you are, the less that rope's going to come up, right? So the Federal Reserve is only controlling the very short end of the curve, the stuff that's three months and less, basically. And as you go out on the curve, there's a relationship to those shorter term rates because people can theoretically buy that bond and roll it over, over and over again to kind of create their own longer term bond. But the further you go out, the, the less impact it has because the more people are thinking about not what the Fed's going to do over the next few months, but what's going to happen over the next 10 years with inflation and economic growth and all that stuff, right? So one example of that, and you can see similar things with the relationship between the 10-year treasury and, and uh, the federal funds rate, but you look at the mortgage rate here and what we can see is when the Fed last started increasing interest rates on the short end, the 30-year mortgage was, you know, sitting right around 4%, call it. And as they continued to raise rates, they continued all the way through 2019 raising rates, and 30-year and mortgages were basically flat. They actually went down for a while, came back up at around that 4 range, down again, up again. And by the time the Federal Reserve ended their hiking cycle and the Fed funds rate was up, you know, 200 basis points, 225 basis points, mortgage rates were still just 4%. Right. So it's just a lot more complicated than saying, you know, every time the Fed raises, it's a direct one for one raise every interest rate that you could imagine. Um, so that's kind of a good way to think about it. And then the last chart I'll show just to kind of drive home the point of economic fundamentals is this one here where you see the labor force growth versus long term treasury rates. So similar to the chart we showed with CPI, you can see the same thing happening here. So as labor force grows and how you can see how insanely fast labor force was growing in the 70s. And then you can kind of see how the 20-year treasury ticks up right along with it. And right as labor force growth is peaking, so do long-term rates. So these are relationships that are very strong, that are seen over and over again in various economies around the world. And that's what we're seeing now. So when you try to you know look for what's happening now with interest rates and inflation and what can we expect in the future, I would say anchor on what we know to be true with sort of that economic gravity and these fundamentals, which is that another chart here, labor force versus nominal GDP growth, same thing, right? Nominal GDP growth tracks labor force growth very closely. There's nothing in our current economy that says labor force is going to start growing really fast. There's nothing in our economy that says productivity is going to start growing really fast. So unless those relationships that are decades long and very strong are going to completely break down, 
the current interest rate environment is temporary by nature, right? It's a situation where you had Federal Reserve pushing rates up on the short end because they got too far ahead of themselves on the other side and they saw the big boom that was happening, the crazy asset price inflation and people spending thousands of dollars on pictures of monkeys and pretend dog coins and whatever else, right? So they had to try to kill that and rein in the inflation and unless those underlying fundamentals change to look more like the 70s or 80s, I don't think we're going to have that kind of interest rate regime like we had in the 70s or 80s. So I know that's a lot of long-winded explanation for it's, what I just got into, but it's I'll make, yeah. from there. <laughs> it makes a lot of sense. And, you know, just going back to the first chart, you know, it's had, you know, in the 70s, it, it was both, both were growing at 8%, you know, the, the um, labor force growth and also CPI, you know, so that's, and, and so when you think like, oh, when was the last time inflation was this high? You, you, okay, you look back to the 70s, early 80s, and then, but it's not, it doesn't look the same at all. Like on this chart, the labor force now is not growing. You know, it's basically hitting zero on the chart. Right. So it's right. like, it just, it's a different, if it, it's a different animal is, uh, is your point. And then look at the, you know, the whole trend of the chart is just, just only nothing but going down essentially from, uh, you know, peaking in 19 you know, 84 ish, you know, and then just going, going down from there. Yeah. So that's where people can get lost sometimes. I think is that you, you kind of get too into the here and now and what's going on. And, and then naturally all of us want to comp to some situation that we know before. So we think back to the seventies, but then you got to take another step and say, well, what else was going on then that's not going on now. So, so that's really sort of the fundamental reason why I think both inflation and interest rates, are kind of temporarily high. Um, and then you can kind of even understand if you think about, you know, what happened in 2020 and 2021, just the sheer amount of money that was created and, and pushed into the system. Like, of course, people are going to spend that money and there's going to be a temporary like dislocation between supply and demand in the market that's going to get expressed through prices. But where is the future growth going to come from, right? If populations are getting older, more indebted, uh, you know, less productive, less people working. It just, someone's got to show me where it's going to come from. If I want to, if we're going to change and start thinking, we have like a long-term inflationary kind of environment. Yeah. Yeah. And so, I mean, on the last uh, podcast we did, I mean, it really was, it's, I'm, you know, I'm a more of a, I'm a simple person, how I think about these concepts and like if inflation is really just supposed to be, uh, you know, worker productivity plus, you know, worker growth, you know, employment growth. It's like, how is this not going to just be in the ones and twos long term? You know, that's how those things are growing. Right. Yeah. Like I mean, the only other things that can change GDP growth over shorter terms are, you know, if inventories rise during a given period, that's going to be reflected in GDP for that quarter. But again, those inventories need to be sold off at some point. So those always kind of net out to zero over time. Government spending is another one where if the government spends a bunch of money, in a given quarter, yeah, of course, GDP growth is going to be way above trend for that quarter, but it's another one that's not sustainable because over the long term, they've got to first take that money from somebody else who can't spend it, right? So instead of, so all they're really doing is converting savings into spending, which can juice things for a while, but it's not going to give you like that long-term growth rate. So it's kind of like, that's the best way, the best term I've heard used and what I like to use is just the, the gravity, right? Where's the gravity taking us? Because over time, you can't fight it, right? And that's kind of, that's kind of the way I think you got to think about it right now. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I think, too, and like one thing that I never really sort of appreciated till recently, just hearing what like it's a lot of people I know what kind of things they're buying is 
so many like uh like so much new stuff had to be bought if we we're going to be starting to work from home more mm-hmm. even just like that little change you know it's like we don't need uh you know everybody needs another work from home setup or needs like so there's just a lot of stuff got pushed through whether that was purchases then or then the and then followed on to that all the you know the retailers and uh, I mean, Target just got smoked uh, a couple quarters ago with their stock price because they built up too much inventory. But then they see, okay, everything is being bought up. Let's let's just buy anything we can that pushes up inflation. And then, and now, now they're having a hard time selling it. You know, some of the right. inventory they built up where they bought too much, or that was actually temporary. Um, so that's uh, you know something something else too is like a practical like scenario besides printing money. It was like we started buying all sorts of other stuff and. People who, um, you know, didn't have a car because they just rode the train to work or something. Now they want to drive because they're worried about COVID. It's like every a lot of things change on what they were buying, too. Right. So, yeah, that's a great point to kind of add on to it or expand on it. Right, the the pull forward demand that happened because of the stimulus checks and everything. Right, because if you you know if you're in the market for a new refrigerator or something. And you think you want one soon, but you're not ready to pull the trigger quite yet. You want to save up some more money, whatever. And all of a sudden you get a check for a couple grand and that's kind of what's on your mind. Yeah. You're going to maybe buy the fridge a little bit sooner than you otherwise would or whatever it is for you and your family, whatever it is that you want to buy. Or if you just want to kind of go out and shop on Amazon for a while. Right. But so you're buying the stuff that you would have otherwise bought anyway, you're just doing it sooner. So it creates this pig in the Python where the supply chains can't give everybody everything they want as fast as they want it. So prices have to rise, but coming behind that once you've already bought your car and your appliances and whatever else you're not buying them again right and like we just talked about there's no new workers coming in to buy them there's no new families being created to to create that new demand so once that demand is gone not only does it drop back to previous levels but it could even go below because you've already just pulled forward all that stuff that would have probably been sold over the next three or four years and you just squeeze it into you know one year yeah, no, that yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And then I think, you know, recently I had a, a, a inflation, a CPI question for you. And then you had sent me uh, a spreadsheet, but it really what it was talking about was sort of comparing inflation month by month, you know, like what any sort of headline you hear is year over year. And okay, we did have a, a big uh, pop with inflation, but now we're, we're really just only talking about that one way when you hear the government talking, why don't you educate us on what's real what's going on with inflation and maybe it's that month by month description yeah that's that's a really good point and yeah so the year over year is what everybody focuses on and it's not that it's entirely worthless but it just doesn't tell you the real whole picture of what's going on right so if you think about inflation and you think about you're looking at like say the last 12 months of inflation and then we're going to get a new monthly reading the only new data point that you're getting is that one month on the end, right? The other 11 months are already known and already baked into the cake. So in terms of trying to understand where inflation is heading and what's happening, you really have to look at that next month and then the next month, right? And this is the difference between, you know, rate of change and cycle analysis versus, you know, looking at levels over time. And I'm a big fan of the rate of change analysis, right? Doing a little calculus from back in the day and looking at, you know, how fast is something changing relative to its prior periods and what can that tell us about, you know, cycles and inflation is a cyclical measure. So I think the easiest way to think about it is if you just do a little thought experiment, it kind of can be pretty clear. So let's just assume for a second that the CPI is a hundred, the index itself is a hundred, not the growth rate, just the number prices in general are started a hundred and they've been a hundred for 12 straight months. And now something happens 
where inflation ticks up and now CPI is 110. So the way that you would measure that is from 100 to 110, right, is a 10% increase. And it's a 10% year-over-year increase because the 10 is being measured on the 100 from 12 months ago. Okay? So that's pretty easy to understand. And then let's just say that happens for two or three months. You get 120, 130, 140, right? Now, each one of those months is still a 10% increase. So on a sequential basis, 10 on 110 is a smaller percentage, and then 10 on 120 is a smaller percentage. So incrementally, it's going up by a smaller percentage. But if you're measuring those against the 100 that still had been occurring because we had 12 straight months of it, your, your year-over-year CPI would be 10% and then 20% and then 30% and then 40% as the CPI got up to 140, let's call it, right? So now you're at 40% year-over-year CPI, even though already the sequential number is going down slightly, right? And then when it really gets kind of funny is now let's say CPI goes down from 140 to 130, right? Well, now you're still taking that 130 and you're measuring against 100 from 12 months ago. So now you have 30% year-over-year CPI, even though prices are coming down. And then if they go down to 120, same thing. Prices just came down again, and you've got 20% year-over-year CPI. So by the time that that comes all the way back down, you've already had prices declining for several months, yet people would be screaming at the top of their lungs about year-over-year CPI inflation being so high, right? So that's obviously a, a much more hyperbolic example to kind of drive the point home, but it is a little bit of what we're seeing now. So I can throw you, I can throw back to one of the charts that I sent you, or at least kind of the similar analysis, and we can kind of see that, how it's actually looking in real life today. So on, on my screen here, we have a, a chart of the sequential change in CPI, and I like to do a three-month moving average to kind of smooth things out a little bit further. And this particular chart is showing from 2019 through to today, basically. So you can kind of see when COVID hit, you get the big kind of quick deflation, and then it kind of pops from there. So you had your, your first stimulus coming, you know, right here at, toward this dip, and then the second and third stimulus came right in that sort of early 2001 area, and you can kind of quickly see the inflationary impulse from there, right? And so core CPI being the orange line here and blue being headline, you can kind of see that they really peaked in the fall of 2001, and then their growth rate started to slow. And, and then, then you're saying have... 2001, and this this chart's a little small. How we would pull up? You mean 2021, right? 2021. I'm sorry. but yeah, I'm I'm with you. Where we we popped up. So yeah, but then if you kind of see, you did have inflation, the growth rate inflation, rate of change terms coming all the way back down. By the time you kind of got into the late 2021 area. And, you know, it's going to bounce around a little bit and be volatile. But then, you know, earlier this year when Russia invaded, gas prices and oil prices went crazy and, and food prices started getting a little bit crazy. You had one more pop, right? And even that, the core CPI never got above its peak rate. And the headline number that's a lot more weighted toward energy and food did push above it, but quickly reverted back down. So then you can see as June, July, August inflation numbers came out, even though those were high 8%, eight and a quarter year over year CPI numbers, the three month moving average as of our last month that we have, which was the September reading that came out in October, that three month moving average came all the way back down to 0.2%, which is right where it was, you know, in the post GFC kind of world, which was zero to 0.4% kind of on a monthly basis, right? So 
already you can kind of see some of this inflation abating in the year over year or in the sequential numbers and the rate of change terms. But it's just going to take a while for that year over year number to come down because it has to catch up to those earlier numbers where the where the growth rate was so high in between, right? Kind of like in the example I gave you before. So until that happens, the year over year numbers are going to stay really high and they're going to grind lower very slowly. But to kind of see what's actually happening in real time, you've got to look at that sort of sequential change to to see what's happening. And then that also is kind of confirmed by, well, I guess while we're on this chart, I should just stay and say that one more point is that projected growth is going to give us another little spike here over the next couple of months. Um, so don't be surprised when you see, you know, sequentially heading back toward 0.6 on a moving average basis before it kind of trails back down again, because it's just the nature of CPI. You can always kind of see how it has little mini cycles within the cycle. So, so it's going to keep going up and there's going to be fluctuations in between, but you know, the, the true growth rate cycle peak of inflation, I think was actually all the way back in, in the fall of 2021. And, if you look at you know market action since then, I think a lot of that confirms it as well. I mean, if you if you're investing you know your your equity portfolio, thinking that you're you're defending yourself against inflation, well, why is the dollar way up if if we have inflation, right? Why is why has oil come down you know from the high from the Russian invasion high? The oil's down you know thirty percent or so. Um, so a lot of those you know and, and gold's not doing much of anything. Uh, a lot of those things are like, you know, inflation hedges and, and, and the right. way you would expect things to happen with inflation, they're not happening either. So in a lot of ways, the market's kind of telling you the same thing. And the last kind of chart that supports that is I, I got you this chart here, which is the, the five-year inflation rate five years forward. And that's another really telling chart because what it's, what it's giving you here is what the market thinks sort of long-term inflation is going to be, basically. And you can kind of see here that you know, inflation expectations leading into 2019, you know, were two to 2.2 percent a year is kind of where the market was pegging forward inflation, and then you actually had a big deflationary trend going into COVID before it even happened, and then coming out of it, despite all the inflation that we've had, uh, you know, on a shorter term basis, you can see all the way through 2021 here, uh, you know, inflation expectations really just got back to where they were in 2018, 2.2 ish percent bouncing around dip down again earlier this year and you get one little spike here when Russia invades again, but even that quickly abated. And now we're kind of oscillating again back in that 2.2, 2.4% range. So to me, this is just, it screams everywhere you look that, you know, inflation is just kind of working itself out because of some one-time events that happened and it's not necessarily, you know, tied to anything broader that's going on. Yeah. It certainly doesn't look like a permanent trend with any of these visuals here. And what do you have, um, and how, how is that the five-year forward CPI, how is that measured? Like, what are they looking at to do that? I don't know the, the precise way that they pull that together, but it's basically based on the forward bond curves. Um, and I think related to kind of how the, the Treasury, the inflation-protected bonds relate to the to the normal or to the you know regular non-inflation adjusted bonds. Um, okay, but it's not like a survey or anything because one thing too to compound all the stuff you're talking about, like a lot of this inflation info the government collects, it's a survey. So it's like if for rent, let's say in housing, like what the survey legit, legit the question is, what would you have charged a year ago unfurnished with no utilities or whatever the wording is and what would you charge now? And just to your point with your... 10, uh, 100 and then growing up to 140, it's like, yeah, fine. Maybe rent screw to 140, 
but they've definitely flattened out and a lot of places are dropping. So like, I think like inflation on at least that item, like it's, it's not happening. So right. now like, but again, right. If it went up to four one forty, in your example drops down 10%, well, we're still up 30%, but it's like, should we be freaking out or not? Uh, that's like the, about inf- inflation not on that item, if it just dropped 10, um, you know, some of these things, you know, it's, it's interesting. It just depends how you look at it. The fed they're, uh, you know, for your everyday person, like even if that item, it, it did grow a lot in the last 12 months, uh, the growth has stopped on, on most everything here, but, um, like, is there, you know, you kind of like their goal isn't to make the price go back to where it used to be. It's just to get it to like level out at the new price. So, and they've already, already done that. So, yeah, that's a good point. And, and the way that they look at it, though, is they're going to look at that CPI year over year number, which is an extremely lagging number, right? So they're going to just keep hammering away until they see that number come down. And to the point that we've both been harping on, even if prices have been coming down for months, the number that they're looking at isn't going to yeah. be going down for a long enough time to where, you know, it's a big risk that they could really overdo it on the on the hiking side and really cause some some problems before they're, it's all said and done. And you brought up another good point, which was that, you know, the way the rent number is calculated in CPI, um, it's been starting to get a lot more, you know, popular to talk about it now. But, you know, it's basically, you know, call it 40% of CPI is shelter component. And that shelter component really comes in on like a 15-month lag to the actual rents, right? So the rent, the the 40% of the CPI growth is based on rent growth that was, that happened, you know, a year to 15 months ago, right? So that's right in that summer 2021 area where rents were just going absolutely berserk. And those numbers are really only going to start hitting CPI now. So you're going to have higher CPI now, but it's really kind of like a phantom increase, right? Because those rents aren't going up anymore. They're actually coming down a little bit now. And you and I right. know that better than anybody, right? We're watching it every day. You know, rents are flat-ish to down, and but that's going to cause incremental increases in the CPI from here on out as well. So a lot of kind of noise in that number, but, um, and how does the, how does the leg, how does the leg end up being 15 months? You know, I actually, I knew there was a leg, but I thought it was closer to like, let's call it six. So, yeah, it's, it's, it has to do with their calculation methodology and and how they use like the averages over time. So it's kind of like if rents went up, you know, if you had an apartment building with 12 units in it and rents went up 20%, but you can only raise rents on one unit right now. So your average rent is, you know, 11 units at $1,000 and one unit at 1200 or something like that. Mm-hmm. Your average increase is pretty small. But as that time, as time rolls on, more of that average moves its way in. But what's actually happening to like the spot price right here and now is not properly factored in. So it's kind of that same okay. argument that we made about how CPI goes up and down slowly. If you're looking at like the broader long-term number similar similar effect happens with the shelter cpi as well because they're they're surveying you then like what are your rents for the whole building almost then or so yeah, i don't know the, like how they how they word the question and it's different depending on if they're talking about owner's equivalent rent or you know some of the, the various other ways that they try to work it you know calculate it or seasonally adjust it but uh i if i can find the research piece i'll share it with you where they kind of calculated it all out and showed where like how the lag actually comes in you might find that interesting too yeah if we turned, if you get it like a year plus yeah yeah we'll put a link to that in the show description if we get we get that but that's uh yeah i, I knew i knew there was definitely a lag because they're asking you know what would you be charging compared to last year but right it's like so there could be up to a 12 month lag is what i figured because we're comparing it to last year um 
but yeah, that makes sense though. Then the right, then that's when is that, uh, you know, if they're then doing some sort of average, that's going to be even more of a leg. Right. So then really like then with the, the, where you see CPI is at where we've, we've peaked, uh, then, and now where we're just sort of, uh, like flatlining here with prices and then, uh, but, but yet like our year over year numbers will still continue to seem scary. Yeah, I think so. You'll get some bouncing around in the sequential numbers, some higher than normal, but that's going to start coming down over time. And then, yeah, the, the year-over-year number is just going to be uncomfortably high for many more months, though, because you're just comping over numbers that are so that were so much lower a year ago relative to today. Where that really starts to wash itself out is like March to June of next year. That's when those high numbers from 2021 are going to be comping against worse numbers from 2022, and it's going to reverse itself really, really fast. So be on the lookout for that sort of in that March, June-ish area for you know the year-over-year numbers to really just fall off a cliff. But we'll be able to kind of see that coming in the sequential numbers before it happens, I think. Yeah, and that yeah, that makes total sense to me. Where it's just it's just like anything you're looking at comps for, you can look and like, oh wow, there's really a high number in 2021 in those months. You're saying, or sorry, in 2022. So once we get to 2023, that same month, like now, you have to grow off the really high number, and it's not it's not going to be there. Uh, you know, in part with how much action the Fed's taken, but it's not going to be there anymore. So then that's when we'll start to see. Um, the headlines sort of match up with maybe what some people are already seeing today, right? Day to day, it yeah, it's interesting too. I you know just kind of um, just doing some research on the the Fed and looking different places, and they, I mean, a lot of times they end up they basically all the time it's like they overshoot because they'll do these rate hike cycles, and then it's like uh, I think the longest they've gone from their last their first hike to first cut was like three years, and then in more recent years it was like eight months like in most recent rate height cycles, like they just overshoot and they're like, shoot, we get, we need to be cutting now. Cause we, it's kind of how it is now. Like, did they already overshoot? They've, it's already in the numbers. You, they just need to sit tight for 12 months. Let the data support what we're seeing now, uh, but right. they, they're not, they're going to keep hiking and then realize, no, we need to cut. Yeah. That's, so, that's classic fed. <laughs> that's yeah. been like the tails all this time. Right. And yeah, I can kind of show, you can kind of see that in the chart that I showed before. Uh, with the CPI change. I mean, once they saw this thing breaking out above the historical trend, right, in in you know, March, April, May, June of 2021, that's when they should have said, okay, we better get on this thing, right? It took them almost a year from there to actually start doing anything about it, just letting all that kind of, you know, ferment under the surface. So, and then, yeah, the same thing's going to happen now, right? You're going to have inflation more or less being a non-issue anymore, and they're just going to keep hammering away until, it's been way too long and, and the consequences become all that more severe. So I think that's definitely got to be expected at this point without a doubt. Yeah. So then where let's just, let's transition to interest rates then. I mean, I think that kind of covers it for inflation. Um, what do you, in interest rates, I mean, there's all, you know, it's not just one number. So let's just maybe go through kind of all the things people are thinking about. So um, when do you see, let's say like treasuries, uh, you know, yields, peaking what do you what do you kind of see there yeah i mean so if you think about the treasury curve again you know the fed's picking up the short end of the rope as high as they can but the long end is still kind of sagging right so as much as the 10-year treasury say has gone up 
it hasn't gone up nearly the same way as like the two-year treasury has, right? And that's why you have such a yield curve inversion right now, because the 10-year treasury doesn't really, you know, react in the same way. So it's actually today, this is a, today it was as inverted as it's been since this whole thing started, right? So what's, what's happening is that, you know, the Fed can try to pull up the long end for a little while and it can't get too far apart from like the two-year in a short period of time because there'd be too much sort of arbitrage between a two-year and a 10-year where people just, you know, wouldn't buy it until it kind of even itself back out. But what you're basically seeing now is that the, the longer term or longer end of the yield curve is already telling you, like, we don't, we don't think in, rates can be very high for very long. Uh, and that's, that's how you get inversions like that, right? So part of it's going to depend on exactly when the Fed pauses or reverses. But I think whenever they kind of show that they're going to do that, you're going to see, you know, in a, in a pretty big hurry, you're going to see the, the short end start to come down and the long end coming down right along with it. Um, and then once the Fed actually sees, you know, unemployment go up and starts to see those year-over-year numbers really roll over, you know, middle of next year or something like that, that's when I think they'll really slam on the brakes and bring the short end down. And you'll actually have an inverted yield, yield or, a, or a steep yield curve again, rather. Um, but part of it's just going to depend on how the economy goes in the meantime and what the people at the Fed are actually thinking in terms of how the short rate short end goes on the longer end, you know, 10 to 30 years, it's going to, you know, probably bounce around in this level, but keep, you know, it's going to stay sagged at this, at the long end of the curve, because, you know, the prospects for economic growth are low, the prospects for inflation long-term are low. So there's just not going to be, you know, like a big move at the long end of the yield curve higher from here. It's going to stay, somewhat inverted to the short end, right? And the Fed can't really push the short end too much higher at this point either. So you probably see kind of like a flat-ish yield curve and everything hovering around a flat inverted level. And then once they they break stuff finally and it actually breaks, then everything comes back down in a hurry and you get the flight to safety move and, and the 10-year goes back down to, you know, 2% or something like that. And I think it's going to be one of those moves where it's just like mind-blowing how fast it happens once once it becomes clear that recession's on the way and that, you know, unemployment's going to start happening and that inflation is not a problem and probably never really was. Uh, it'll all kind of reverse itself, but it's kind of like a waiting game until then to kind of see when it all kind of starts to move. And then, and you see that it's hard to put a time on this, but you see that happening called spring, summer next year. That'd be my guess. And yeah, I don't, would never make like a, a direct forecast and pound the table that I know exactly when it's going to happen. And it's more of like a long-term thing, right? Cause we know again, the long-term fundamentals, the gravity tells us that, you know, we're in a low rate environment, low inflation environment, but how long can the shorter term effects persist? I think they can, you know, it would be hard to see them persisting all the way through an economy that's clearly in a recession and inflation that's clearly, you know, rolling over and, and going low again. Um, I think you'll get the double whammy of the Fed drastically pulling down the lower or the short end and then the long end following suit and like a flight to safety. So I'd say probably right around that level, right? If, if the economy stays way stronger than we think it's going to stay for a longer period of time, and, you know, inflation really doesn't cool off and it gives the, the Fed a chance to keep the short and higher for longer, then that can get pushed out. But that would be my my best guess at this point. Yeah. I mean, even, you know, being in, in real estate. So like you see, it's, you know, it's the industry, uh, not just the investments, but the industry, you know, it where interest rates are matters. You know, if you're a mortgage broker or a realtor or people who work on those transactions, like so that stuff all just 
went to a, a screeching halt as race started going up. Like there's nobody that needs to do a refi anymore. Um, barely, you know, if you refi it in the threes or the twos, like you're not going to refi now. So like a lot of that. So we saw that coming really early, obviously being in real estate. So we were seeing that and already in April, um, so personally, I kind of thought by like this winter, I mean, right, wouldn't that have expanded to the whole economy uh, and not just loan officers are getting laid off now. It'll be in other industries. And then I had um, known what you're talking about with inflation where, right, we're running into high comps. And then two, just looking at um, kind of how this is being done, like it's just it was just like your simple example going from 100 to 140. Like we already went to our version of 140 and now we just need the data to catch up. But I you got to think by like winter, like that recession will be here and people will, and it's kind of the data will be showing like, okay, we kind of passed the peak. So it's, 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 uh, it's like obvious to see this, what's going to happen, but the timing is yeah tricky. Cause if someone would have asked me that like eight months ago, when would you see that? I'd be like this winter, you know, and, right. we're, and we're here, it's, it's this winter and it's not there yet. You know, the average person, uh, prices are still going up, uh, in their mind and the labor market's still super strong, but, uh, just somehow being in real estate, I didn't see the market, the labor market is that strong in my opinion, where at any real estate company, when I talked to them, they're not, they weren't this summer, like, Oh, we're going to load up on asset managers or acquisitions, people or transaction coordinator. They're just like, no, we don't, uh, we're, we hope we can just keep who we got. Like we're, there's not going to be as many deals with the way things are, are looking. So then there's less, uh, like way less employment. So maybe just us being on the tip of the spear, you know, on that, I kind of thought it was coming earlier, but to your point, you don't really need to make timing bets. It's to sort of get yourself positioned in the right direction and, uh, and wait. Right. Yeah. It's going to be painfully slow because this stuff has to come, you know, over multiple, you know, multiple months of people, things getting a little bit worse and trying to extend things and trying to hang on. And, you know, companies don't want to lay people off because they, it was so hard to fight to find people the last couple of years that they don't want to lay people off unless they're absolutely certain that demand is really going to be low for them. So I think it's just going to take more time and it's going to be, you know, frustratingly long time for the people that have the kind of opinion that I have. I've already been frustrated with it as well. Um, but yeah, I mean, I'm not, it's also important to line up your investments with your, you know, in your investment time frame with your thought process as well, right? I'm, I'm not like, you know, trading short term, you know, options and futures on interest rates or something like that, where I need to know this week what's going to happen or something like that, right? I'm looking for over the next five, 10 years, you know, how, how are things looking and what does that mean for where you can kind of position yourself in, in some of those long term investments? So I think it's one of those things where you just kind of stay the course and, and, and believe in the and gravity taking hold again, right? Like Wiley Coyote runs off the cliff and he's going to look down eventually and then fall, but it just takes a little time for him to, you know, realize it before yeah. it actually happens. So that's kind of where I'm at right now. And yeah, maybe I'm completely wrong. So, you know, don't, uh, don't go running out there and, and buying, you know, calls on, on uh, treasury bonds or something like that on my account. But you know, that's just the way, I, the way I see it. Yeah. It's something, you know, it's interesting. And I know that you've, um, you've been buying the TLT ETF um, or selling it short. Which direction are we going here? Let me think. Just buying it, right? Cause it, yeah, I've just been kind of adding to it slowly and just, you know, knowing that it's accumulated a position and eventually, if, if I'm right and rates, you know, come down, then that'll do really well relative to 
other stuff in the market, right? And I've also been buying dollars through this ETF called UUP, which just basically allows you to own dollars, which is another good asset when you think recession is coming and, and you know, things are going to start looking a little worse. So I've definitely been surprised and getting my butt handed to me on the TLT side as of right now. But again, it's one of those things where I'm just, you know, taking a chunk every month and, and just putting it in. And every time I do that, my average price comes down a little bit and then I'm just kind of waiting for, for things to turn around. So I'm not, not worried about it. I'm still very confident in it and I don't need it to happen anytime in the immediate future. So. Yeah. And this, and just definitely check with whoever you work on your investments with. This is just us talking here. We're not your uh, financial advisor for what ETFs to be trading, but we have, um, but that, that makes a lot of sense because basically when uh, rates fall, the treasuries that paid the old higher rates, they're worth more. So then what you just position and go, all right, well, I'm buying into this ETF. And then when rates drop, the old ones are worth more. Those are paying more. And then um, this will go up. So it's like, it's a trend you can see. You don't need to know, uh, you know, the, the timing exactly. It would have been nice to know, hey, rates are going to keep going up and you could get in later than, than, than you did, but you're in and um, you'll be right when rates drop. And if you look at any of those, any chart, I mean, the long-term trend has been down and, it's not the 1970s where, um, you know, we had, I mean, my uh, parents were becoming like a, adults, if you will, like they were in their 20s at that age and maybe yours were too. So we got so many stories in our heads what it was like then, but it was just like the, you know, all these baby boomers ready to just to buy anything they could. And my, um, it was just like, a, it was just like another bubble of sorts um, with like a population bubble being hit. Yeah. So because yeah, the way um, at least it's the way it sounded. Where like I just they all just need to get their hands on a on a, like any house they could afford and furnish it. And you know interest rates were crazy, so you need to buy now for it gets crazier. So and it's it's a lot different time than now. There's not a tidal wave of people coming. Yeah, so. yeah, that's the main that's the main takeaway. I think is is to just kind of understand that point and and we'll kind of just have to monitor where things go from here and and just see you know, if anything changes. Uh, the only other point to bring up, I guess, is that the when somebody asked me, like, hey, what what would make you wrong or what could go, you know, what would change your mind or something like that? I think the one thing that could make me wrong about this is that if there's like a really long sustained period of time where it becomes very hard, people realize how hard it is for the federal government to actually pay their bills because deficits are so high and the psychology of the market starts to realize like, hey, they're going to have to print their way out of this problem at some point. Right. And like, a, so there's like a psychological shift in people's minds that they just don't want to hold treasury debt and they don't want to hold dollars that can change the inflation picture quite a bit, just like that psychological component. And if that does happen, I think I will be wrong because then it's just a matter of people just being, having sort of a general revulsion towards holding those government assets. Um, but if that's not the case, people still see, you know, dollars as a good place to be and, and treasuries is a good place to be. Then I think we're still on track to on that sort of long term trend that we talked about. Yeah. But just like you said in the last podcast, we're still the United States will still be the cleanest, dirty shirt. That's right. Out of the option. <laughs> so there's not, you know, not a lot of great places to put your money if you're just trying to be in a, in a safe uh, government treasury these right. days. So a lot of the emerging economies seem a little scary to be giving your money to. Uh, and then Europe's not, you know in the worse off than we are. So, right. But nice. Yeah. I think then how, uh, one thing that I want to drill down on and then let's, uh, we can wrap up, but I think the, um, why would the, let's say the, the shorter term treasuries 
drop so quickly, those are much more correlated to what the Fed's doing. And the Fed, I mean, who knows how quick they'll be to reverse course. Why well, I could see where the 10-year would drop. People would say, yeah, this is not making sense long-term. We're going to be around around two long-term for growth. And the, the 10-year right now is yielding over four. So let me jump into that while well, I still can. And then that'll make the price, that'll make the yield go down. But why would the two-year drop so fast? What action is going to happen on that? Well, I think the two-year can only drop once the Fed reverses course, right? So I, I think that what's going to happen is, you know, sometime in that March to June timeframe, that's when the Fed will finally realize the mistake they're making right now. And they'll go, oh, crap, things are getting really bad. We got to cut, you know, inflation is back to 2% year over year or something like that. And now job losses are actually accelerating and stock market's down another 20% from where it even is now or something like that. I don't know to quote me on the number, but, and then they're going to finally just, you know, abandon ship and say, okay, we did our job, pat themselves on the back for how awesome they are with inflation and now say, hey, we can cut now because the economy needs it. And, you know. Everyone will probably cheer because they're heroes while I'm cursing them in the background or something like that. But I think that's going to be how the short end comes down. Uh, but you're right. The long end, I think, is is where you can see it actually happening from a market-based perspective. The problem with the long end coming down too much is that I just don't know how inverted the yield, yield curve can get, right? Like if the two years at 475 5%, I don't think a 10-year treasury can be at 2%, right? That's just too much yeah. of an inversion there. It just doesn't make sense, right? But, you know, 50, 60 bips of inversion like we're at right now, I think that'll kind of hold until that front end comes down and then the, the long end will come down with it. That makes sense. So basically, we got you're going to wait. The Fed will cut and then it's going to be a flight to the exit on the two-year because we go parties over on yeah. the short-term one yielding so much. And then maybe they hop to the 10-year or put risk on and they're they're back in the stock market or whatever they're doing. Yeah, and then the flight to safety will happen in the 10-year as well because once the Fed cuts, that's sort of their admission that things are bad now and there's danger on the horizon. So a lot of people also think as soon as the Fed cuts, stocks are going to go up and everything's going to be a party again. Well, that's just not true, right? If you actually look at what happened historically, the Fed started cutting rates you know, in 2000, 2001, I believe it was, 2001, and they cut straight through until you know 03, whatever it was. Stock market didn't bottom until 03. The stock market fell right alongside those that Fed being dovish and cutting rates, right? Same thing happened in, in the GFC, right? The Fed started cutting rates 2007, 2008, somewhere in there, you know, two straight years before the market bottomed in March of 2009. So for people to think, like, the moment the Fed says that they're pivoting and they're turning dovish is, is the right time for, like, risk assets to rip, it's just not historically very likely to happen, it's because of the fact that the, that the Fed's going to go too far. They're going to screw things up. And then cutting rates is because they go, oh, crap, we screwed things up. Right? And the market's going to respond to the fact that things aren't doing so well right now. So I think that's I think there's a long time for this to play out. It's not going to be one of those like, oh, the Fed raised rates and then there's a little recession and now we're back to going crazy. I think it's going to be, you know, you got to have like the, the job losses start, more market losses, the Fed pauses, the Fed cuts, market keeps coming down because the Fed's cutting, and then you find a bottom, you know, well out into the future, I think, is going to be kind of how it goes. So we'll see. I mean, everything's been moving at light speed lately, so maybe it does kind of ramp up relative to history. But, you know, I just I think people are kidding themselves if they think it's going to be like a real quick, oh, the Fed's, the Fed's done raising now, and we can all get back to, you know, buying dog coins. So. Yeah, and, I, and too, the time, it's interesting to hear. So it might be another what, nine months before we kind of squash the inflation with the way that's reported. And then 
by then now we have the recession to deal with and that could be a year or two type thing. So this could be, could be really a while then that's what you're seeing. Yeah, it definitely could be. And depend. yeah, it so much just depends on the speed at which things change and how severe the recession ends up being, or if it's a very shallow recession because people don't want to lay off a lot of people because it's so hard to get them back. And it's just more of like a growth cycle downturn and a shallow recession. But yeah, I think it's just in general, I wouldn't be in a rush to do anything right now in terms of, you know, calling a bottom or anything like that. I think you just got to be disciplined, keep, you know, in the real estate sense that we're in. Keep looking at deals. Keep looking to see what makes sense. Be disciplined. Have a pretty high hurdle for what you think you want to do and what makes sense for you to pull the trigger. Just keep looking for good deals. Do them when they show up, but don't be don't be crazy. Don't stretch. Don't over leverage. And, and I think that's the only way to do it, right? If we could time things better, I'd be some sort of hedge fund trader. I own the I own the New York right. Mets by now or something. So. Yeah. All right. That uh, <laughs> the different hedge fund the hedge fund guy has the Mets, but yeah, that. Uh, yeah, makes, yeah, makes sense. And I think we've, yeah, we've been doing the same, thinking the same, like either wait for the market to bottom out and be buying, or if there's something that makes sense now, just it's, it's a longer term hold it's seven or 10 year type hold. It's not a good time to be thinking, let's buy this deal, do X, Y, and Z and be in and out of it in three years. It's just not. And then too, that makes it tough to know, like on a, if you're going to do that kind of deal with everything you're talking about with interest rates to go fixed or floating, on your deal because it, it seems crazy to be like let's float interest rates where uh do a variable rate loan where the rate might start out higher today than your fixed rate but in all these commercial deals it's not like buying a house with a 30-year fix where you can just sell it with no no cost to pay off your loan like all the right. commercial loans there's a a huge yield maintenance penalty that you need to pay if you want to pay it off early so it's not as easy as just being like, cool, I'll just fix the rate. And when they drop, I'll just refi and um, and take advantage of lower rate. Like that's a lot harder to do in commercial property. So right. Yeah, there are some banks and smaller lenders that will give you relatively decent terms or they'll give you like a three, two, one step down on a prepayment penalty. And it's not the crazy yield maintenance. But yeah, it's really tough to find. And the bigger you get in size, the harder those kinds of things are to find because you're going to need like a community bank or somebody to do it. So that's why I actually think that, you know, probably not right now, right now, but soon floating rate might make some real sense, especially if you're going to be smart about it and buy a cap, right? Yeah. Because, you know, there might be another 100, 150 basis points in Fed funds rate to go maybe, right? So if you can cap your rate somewhere up in that range and know that a deal still works if rates float that way against you, and then you do have that ability as rates to come down to benefit from that or to refinance and to fix later without the penalties and stuff. So. It'll be like a lot of other things in markets, right? Where, right when everybody else hates it the worst, it's probably going to be the right time to maybe start looking at it a little bit. So. Yeah. I mean, there's a, a great uh, podcast. I'm b- going to blank on the guy's name, but it's the the Rate Guy podcast. And he he's one of the owners of Pensford or one of the guys who's the higher up there. And he um, and that's a company where you buy caps from. And mm-hmm. it's a great podcast. And he's done a lot of research on everything. And it's like the worst time to go fixed was as rates were peaking. You know, it's, it seems obvious, like when you're looking at a rearview mirror, but at a time like now, it seems uh, it would seem crazy to do very you know, a floating rate deal. Right. You know, like it's higher than the fixed rate right now. And um, we're talking about rates going up more. But when you look back on it, you're like, yeah, that was for the first year. Then the next four was way cheaper. Exactly. So right. it's just really hard to, uh, you know, to want to sign up for something like that. So we've been looking at a lot of deals that are, um, we'll call it 12 million and under, because then we can get into that uh, Fannie or Freddie small balance program. So seven and a half million dollar loans or less. 
and they do seven, 10 year fixed and they have a step down option on that. So then that kind of gives us the best of both worlds. Um, you know, that's if, if you're able to fit into that bucket and do those kind of loans. So we've been trying to make sense of that. If it just works as is with that, and then you got the upside potentially to pay your loan off, refi or sell. Um, yeah, that's like a great that. point. That's really smart. I didn't, I don't know much about like that small balance program because I just don't play in the space, but that's awesome. That sounds like a really good place to be. Yeah. They really, any loan from like from 1 million to seven and a half million on a five unit or more, uh, Fannie and Freddie, they have a streamlined program for it where it's, it's a lot cheaper to originate the loan than, um, the conventional program. And then, yeah, they have a lot of, a, a bunch of different step down options, like not just one, like you can pick from like three or four, depending on how. And there's add on to the rates. If you want a more aggressive, um, like a, a, the least amount of prepay, then you got to pay a little more on your rate, but it's all mm-hmm. like formulaic where there's just like a sheet, like this prepay is 10 more basis points per year. So, mm-hmm. and we have a whole podcast on that. If anyone wants to look Jim Voza, the guy I've used for like, uh, you know, 20 plus loans, he's, he was on and broke down the whole program for over an hour. So if anyone wants to check that out, so that's great. Yeah, I'm definitely gonna check that one out. Yeah. Great. Well, yeah, I think that's, yeah, that's great, Phil. I mean, I really appreciate having you back on the podcast. Uh, I think if anyone wants to kind of learn more from you, where, where should they go? Just find me on Twitter, Phil underscore McAllister, or, um, you know, I'm not, uh, not out here looking to raise money or, or, you know, do anything other than kind of talk shop and meet cool people and add to the conversation. So, uh, you know, find me on Twitter, shoot me a DM, something like that. And happy to get in touch and, but that's, yeah, that's really about it. Yeah. You have put out a lot of really good, uh, really good thoughts on Twitter. And then you also have a sub stack and that's someone that's like a blog. Um, how does that work? Yeah, I, I do a sub stack. It's called macro meets real estate and I do it very spotily just when I have an idea and I want to write about it and I have the time. So I apologize in advance for my subscribers that hang in there for like two or three months when I don't write anything. But um, when I do do something a little bit more long form, share a bunch of charts and stuff, I'll do it there. So you can, you can check me out there as well, but I make no promises as to the quality or quantity of the, of the product you're going to get. Yeah. I really like the, the, if it's called the article or whatever it is, but on Substack, the one about the marginal renter with the industrial, uh, yeah. that that's something very interesting to think about. And everybody should check out if they're in the real estate space about rent growth and like how, uh, like, is it really applied to everybody in the market or is that just what that one next uh, renter would pay? So we'll right. leave it at that. You should need to check out the rest. So <laughs> if you want to, want to see it, but yeah, great, great lessons here. Thanks again, Phil. Appreciate it. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Great. Well, until next time, everyone, thanks for joining us and we'll see you on the next episode. Thanks for joining us on the rise and invest podcast. Please be sure to hit that subscribe button on YouTube or wherever you enjoy your podcast. If you'd like to dive even deeper into real estate investing, check out our company's website, riseinvest.com, where we have numerous free resources and information that can help both active and passive real estate investors. Our 100 plus page passive investing guidebook, our trends report, and our blog are all available on our website. If you are an accredited investor, you can get started today as a passive investor in our multifamily investment opportunities by hitting the invest now button on our website, The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of Drew Brenneman and guests as of the date of recording and do not purport to reflect the views or opinions of Rise Invest Holdings LLC and its subsidiaries.
The views and opinions are provided for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon or deemed as investment or tax advice or an offer to buy or sell securities. And the speaker cannot be held responsible for any direct or incidental loss incurred by applying any of the information offered.